0: to pulp from beyond the veil. My name is Cody Sullivan, and thank you for being with us. Well, love is in the air here, folks. Despite us reaching you after the coming of Valentine's Day on the 14th, we'd still like to highlight and celebrate love, lust, and everything in between. It is a very special episode, as the pair of couples in each story segment are not merely strangers or acquaintances, no. Both of the couples in this episode are married. Now before we begin, I would like to give a quick thank you to everyone who checked out our website since the launch of Episode 6. We hope to add more content there, such as blog entries about the show and guest descriptions in the coming weeks. Also, you can now listen to Pulp on YouTube, so if that's your preferred medium, please be sure to like, subscribe, and click the bell to be a part of our notification squad. With that out of the way, this is Pulp. Now let's begin. Our first tale begins in a sleepy little town much like my own. Two strangers sit in silence, but for the low rumbling of washing machines. It's hard to imagine a less romantic backdrop than the fluorescent lit room with the sterile odor of bleach in the air. But what happens next is anything but ordinary, and these two who start as strangers, in time, a long time, become something more. Submitted for your approval, a moment caught in time between a man and woman with no common ground save a basket or two of dirty clothes. This story's called Through the Ringer. The trouble began for Ralph Gerson when he tramped through the door of his rundown local laundromat on Valentine's Day. The place was quiet for a change. In fact, the only other soul in the place was a woman reading a novel on the molded plastic seats by the window. It was just before six o'clock, and snow had been falling steadily for the past three hours. Under other circumstances, Gerson wouldn't have even thought of doing laundry at this time, on this day, and in this weather. His single friends had goaded him into joining them for a night at the bar, though, which he did so rarely that he simply couldn't flake out. The problem was, he didn't have anything to wear. The fact that he was only at the laundromat on Valentine's Day so he could go out later meant that he was not a total loser... Or so he told himself. He put his clothes into the machine and sat down to read an old National Geographic which had been abandoned God knows how long ago. Ralph risked a second look at the woman reading the novel, but would rather have died than face the embarrassment of talking to a stranger in a laundromat. For Elise Chambers, who sat in the row of chairs directly across, the trouble began with work. After spending her morning writing her dissertation and her afternoon in a lecture, she realized that her work clothes were all dirty, following an incident the night before involving a drunk patron and vomit. She had no choice but to rush to the laundromat before her shift started at 8. Things would be better soon, though. By the end of the month, her dissertation would be finished. Eli would be returning from abroad as well, and she looked forward to the prospect of normal couple things again, with all the time in the world to do them. She could finally tell him their news, too, now that it could be in person. She should have been working on her paper, and she knew it. Instead, she had picked up a romance novel that had been left on a spider-infested window. She looked at the man who sat across the way... And, being accustomed to conversations with strangers, broke the silence.
1: It's really coming down out there.
0: Ralph looked around to make sure there was nobody else. Um, yeah. It barely started before it got dark, and now...
1: It won't deter the bar crowd, though.
0: No, I suppose not. Ralph stopped dead, and Elise's jaw turned slow circles as though chewing on her thoughts. They had looked outside at the same time. The window was dirty and covered in cobwebs, and there was a hole from where somebody had shot it with a pellet gun. Beyond that, though, the world had stopped. Really stopped. Snow hung in the air and clung to the roadway as a plow truck halted in mid-turn. A woman stood in the driveway opposite them, snow flying from her shovel, but never going anywhere. In the laundromat, only the noise of the machines could be heard. A sharp bang snapped the two of them back to reality. Do you see that? The outside world was as still as a painting. After introductions, the two strangers had left off with the small talk for a while. Neither tried the door... "'There was still laundry to be done. "'When an hour and a half had passed, "'Elise and Ralph were both visibly anxious. "'Both had somewhere to be that night, "'but their clothes weren't even to the spin cycle yet. "'Elise tried the door of the machine.
1: "'Nothing. It's locked. I'm going to be late for work.'
0: "'You and a lot of other people.' "'Ralph muttered, indicating the road outside. "'When three hours had elapsed, "'Elise tried the door to the outside.' She couldn't imagine why she hadn't tried sooner. It was no use, though. The door stayed shut. It was as though a fierce wind were blowing it, though no movement could be seen outside. The light hadn't changed, and the snow stood still in the air. Things moved inside, but the clothes didn't change cycles. It was six hours before the two strangers really began to talk.
1: So, where are you supposed to be tonight?
0: The rail yard. You?
1: Huh. No shit, really? Me too.
0: Valentine's (sighs) date?
1: I wish. Work in the bar.
0: Go figure. We'd have met tonight regardless. It's like fate, right? After a day, Elise began to hint at her thesis. Ralph didn't pick up for some time that she wanted him to ask her about it. The topic bored him and asking probing questions felt dangerous. After another day or so, though, Ralph noticed that he was growing accustomed to the closeness. He might have even liked it. After about a week, Ralph suggested smashing the window. Anything, he argued, would be better than being trapped forever in a laundromat, living on vending machine snacks and sleeping on the floor. Elise wasn't sure. After all... What if they froze like everything else did? She couldn't bear the thought of that. Perhaps a few weeks in, Elise and Ralph had sex for the first time. It wasn't romantic or mind-blowing, but simply necessary in order to clear the air.
1: Listen, there's something you should know. I'm pregnant.
0: Elise stammered afterward. Wow. That was fast.
1: No, dummy.
0: Elise laughed as a tear began to stream down her cheek.
1: I'm serious. Before this, before everything just stopped, my boyfriend was going to come home from studying overseas, and I was going to tell him. Now I don't know what I'll do. I just worry, like, is the baby even growing? Is it safe? I mean, the clothes haven't even hit rinse yet, for fuck's sake.
0: For a long time, the two of them were more or less a couple by default. Elise was writing notes for a book in the margin of magazines. Ralph mostly tried to figure out when the clothes would be done. Ralph didn't think much how long the two of them had been stuck in the building by the time their relationship collapsed. Elise figured it must have been at least eight months. She needed space, which Ralph thought was absurd. They were confined together. Ralph just wanted to write the ship. Listen... He said, trying to smooth things over. I know things have been really hard. Especially with what your life used to be.
1: You know, that's the problem. You've given up. What my life used to be? Try what my life is. I'm going to be in the vending machine nook. Alone!
0: It was a while before Elise and Ralph sat down to talk things out. It was just too much, she told him. She had wanted closeness, but couldn't keep it up. Friends? She eventually told him, adding...
1: At least for a while.
0: The last fight was about the baby.
1: You don't even ask anymore. It's like you don't even care.
0: Of course I care. Ralph moaned with frustration. I just don't see the point in
2: asking. I mean, how long has it been? Months? Years?
1: How the fuck should I know? How could either of us know anything? It's always the same here with you and these awful books and the sound of goddamned washers.
0: Calm down, listen, I'm sorry.
1: Don't tell me to calm down! All day long it's just you and laundry and that, that fucking snowstorm.
0: Elise grabbed a rolling cart and heaved it at the still life of a snow-covered evening which had served for so long as the only art on their living room wall. The metal cart collided with the pinprick pellet hole and a new spiderweb appeared on the window. It expanded rapidly for a spiderweb, but downright languorously for shattering glass. As it did, snow from the neighbor's shovel flew toward the bank by the driveway. Like a searchlight, the yellow beacon atop the plow in the snowy street began to creep across the space. Its light fell on Elise's face first, slowly inching over Ralph's. She looked so tired and worried to him. It was a miracle she was even on her feet. Elise looked at Ralph's bewildered brow and slack jaw, saw just how stupid and lost he was, how stupid and lost he had been since the day they met, a month or a year or a decade ago. She just stared like that, unsure how long it lasted. The cart had traveled halfway through the window and was speeding up noticeably. There were more movements in that glance than there had been in ages. Then the machines let out a horrific buzzing alarm. The cart crashed into the parking lot outside in a cacophony of broken glass. The wash was done. Ralph and Elise both made their way to their respective washers, loading dryers lightly to save time. A half an hour later, they bumped into each other getting to the door. Sorry. He mumbled. So, hey, see you at the bar? Yeah. She sighed.
1: (sighs)
3: See you the
2: bar.
0: Whether they deserve it or not, you'd be hard-pressed to find a more maligned profession than that of lawyers. It's easy to see why. High-profile cases like that of O.J. Simpson and Casey Anthony have a way of inciting wrath in those of us watching at home, as well as feelings of disenchantment with our justice system. If you can afford a good enough attorney, you may just be able to get away with murder. Circumstances like that are how the protagonist of our next story ended up in the most bizarre case of his successful career. Indeed, it seems he would do well to listen to the angel on his shoulder as he attempts to sway the jury, for this is one case he won't walk away from the same. Humbly submitted for your approval is this original pulp classic. This story is called let the record show.
2: man is fucking doomed. If you need a dancer, she makes for you.
0: All right, all right, let's call the court to order. Mr. Howard, has the defense prepared their closing statement?
4: We have, Your Honor.
0: Then by all means, please get to it.
4: Ladies and gentlemen of the jury... Let the record show that the Honorable Judge would like us to continue. Perhaps because he too would like to catch the Celtics game tonight.
0: Oh, I assure you, Counselor, the Celtics are not a conflict of interest.
4: Please continue. Very well then, I'll begin. My defendant, young Mr. Ross here, has been shown by the prosecution one transgression and one transgression only unpaid speeding tickets. I mean, mean, wow, a 19-year-old kid with a few speeding tickets color us all surprised, right? (laughs) The fact is, my defense has proved that because of the missing eyeglasses of Jessica Harris and Fred Herschel only seeing the aftermath of the incident, that both the prosecution's witnesses are unable to say, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that they witnessed my client speeding. However... What is not debatable is the observable lack of any crosswalk in the victim's vicinity. And while this is undeniably a tragedy, how in good conscience could you possibly deliberate a guilty verdict of vehicular manslaughter, destroying the future of a decent young man, all without knowing the certainty that he was doing anything wrong besides heading to meet some friends on a dark, rainy night? Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, if this is the only crime my client is guilty of, Are you willing to hang his future using nothing but a rope made from speeding tickets? Hell, who among us is guilty of that sin, hmm? Mr. Ross is a good man, and God willing, he'll have the opportunity to show that. Thank you.
0: Order in the courtroom, please. Order. All right. this court will adjourn, allowing the ladies and gentlemen of the jury to deliberate their verdict. Hey, congratulations on the case, Bob.
4: Thank you. Thank you. thank. Justice was served today. Hello? Hey, honey. Hi, Bobby. Did you win? Yeah, baby, I won. Listen, I wanted to let you know that I'm going to be running late. Bobby, it's Valentine's Day. I know, sweetheart. But I figured I'd swing by the liquor store on the way home and pick up some champagne for dinner. Between winning my third case this year and six years with my beautiful wife, I've got a lot to be thankful for. Besides, what's a celebration without champagne? (laughs) And I'm sure you're dying to hear my toast. (laughs) All right, Counselor, the prosecution rests. I just have to tidy up the classroom, but I'll be home in a few. I'll see you when you get home. All right, I'll see you then. Bye, darling.
0: The man you just witnessed walking down the courthouse steps is Mr. Robert Howard, a more than capable attorney for those who can afford his services. A quick detour on the way home is the catalyst to set into motion the cosmic events of this story. Because, as capable a lawyer he is, a responsible driver he is not. Taking his eyes off the road for only a moment while the light was green causes him not to notice the yellow and subsequent red light warning. Unbeknownst to him, he has taken on a special case, the biggest case of his entire life, with the consequences dire and the verdict eternal.
3: Mr. Howard?
0: Mr. Howard? Good. I think he's finally ready. When Bob opened his eyes, he found he was in a courtroom unlike any other. While the room itself seemed to be as dull as every other courtroom he'd practiced in, the people in the room, if you could call them that, were anything but normal. Mr. Howard, how are you feeling?
4: Wait, where am I? I was just driving. I remember the crash. What What happened? You're dead, Bob. What? No, no, no. Really?
0: Really, really. See this? The judge gestured to a floating halo of burning gold above his head. And that? The judge pointed to the desk where the prosecution was sitting back in a chair with his black boots on the table. He was a sharply dressed man, but with long horns that curled back like a ram's. And them? Finally, the judge gestured to the jury. A mix of six men and women in robes of white adorned with gilded halos atop their heads, and six men and women in fine suits and dresses of black and red, all with long horns protruding from their heads. Yeah, you didn't make it.
4: So, is this heaven?
0: No, not
3: quite. But if you're fortunate enough to win this case, then I'll send you straight up. Otherwise, you go, you know, down stairs. I'll be your judge today, the Honorable St. Peter. Counselor for the prosecution today will be his unholiness, Asmodeus, and your arbiter for this case will be the inimitable St. Valentine. Bob
0: hadn't noticed the angel sitting to his left. He looked like an older man with a white beard, long white robe, and a halo like the others. He had kind eyes but his hands were trembling nervously on the desk. It's
5: good to meet you. I'm hoping for a good outcome, being it's my patron day and all. Lord knows I could use a win. It's good to meet you too, I guess. Hey, what's your record anyhow? Against Asmodeus, 60 wins, 9,222 losses, but it's my patron day.
4: Oh, Jesus.
5: No, St. Valentine. Well, hopefully you'll get to meet
0: him.
4: Your honor. If what you say is true, then I wish to represent myself in this matter. Hey! I don't trust in the counsel that has been offered to me. And given my experience practicing law, I feel it is in my best interest to handle this case myself. I wouldn't recommend that.
3: Well, despite your more than adequate knowledge of law on earth, I would advise you to keep the counselor that has been provided for you. However, I will allow you the privilege of leading your defense how you see fit, granted that you keep Counselor
0: Valentine on your team. The prosecutor folded his hands behind his head and let out a
2: gleeful hiss between his teeth. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, let the record show that the court has been in session all of two minutes, and the accused has already demonstrated a profound understanding of the sin of pride. Prosecutor,
3: I'll ask that you refrain from making such observations until after opening statements. Now, Mr. Howard, are we ready to begin?
4: Now, now just a minute, Your Honor. If what you're saying is true, then why does this court appear so... normal? How do I know these so-called consequences are even real? Mr.
3: Howard, this court can look however I wish. I chose this mundane backdrop for your own sake, but if you'd prefer something more dramatic, that can be arranged.
0: A gust of hot air struck the right side of Bob's face. He turned to look. Sitting directly where a few empty rows of seats had been, there was now an impossibly long series of ebony seats, row after row, as far as the eye could see. And seated there were hundreds of screaming souls lit aflame and reaching out to him. He locked eyes with the prosecutor whose form had changed from a dapper lawyer to that of a red-skinned demon who smiled with a forked tongue between his teeth. A cool breeze blew over his left shoulder and he turned to look. St. Valentine's familiar shape was replaced by a towering figure with six feathered wings. His features appeared sharp and bird-like, but his kind eyes remained. Behind his seat on the defense was row after row of opalescent ivory, with smiling faces sitting contently, whispering, and watching him. A few rows back, he spotted his deceased grandfather waving.
4: Nope! Nope! Sorry your honor. Boring and mundane will be fine, thank you.
3: Oh, uh yeah, you're sure? Well, okay. All right, great. Uh prosecutor, you're up. We present evidence to
0: In his opening, the opening statement, Asmodeus listed the, the various sins and wrongdoings and Bob was guilty of. The scope of his information knew no bounds done. as he began by listing off countless times Bob as a child would rifle through his grandmother's purse for sweets and money. Money. There were many times in college where Bob's behavior was described as quite hedonistic, but most damning of them all was the most recent and largest transgression saving the guilty, the guilty from, the from the clutches
2: of justice.
0: Mr Howard on the other hand chose to open with examples of his civil service beyond practicing law.
4: win record and a pretty high He
0: cited examples of serving cake to retirees at the retirement community when he was in high school. You ever heard
4: of an attorney that doesn't consider other people before himself? One of you in this room. He it's rattled off insane. the amount
0: of money he donated I to various charities every
4: year, and
0: most importantly,
4: everybody he listed off the number of clients who were innocent
0: made. that he'd saved by working so diligently on their case. Unfortunately, Bob could sense that his case wasn't going over well, and he became increasingly nervous
2: as the prosecution finished its closing statements. I can count no less than eight trials in the past four years where the defendant knowingly represented clients he knew had committed crimes beyond forgiveness. Three trials of manslaughter, one of attempted rape, and four murder charges were all successfully defended by Mr. Howard, with all his clients walking away freely. Now... It's one thing to do your duty as a professional, and quite another to willingly accept and seek out high-profile cases where all signs point to your client's culpability, and for what? Money. Mr. Howard is a selfish, greedy, conniving man, and thus he's a great attorney, and will be in good company with the others downstairs. Thank you.
3: Thank you, Counselor. Is the defense prepared to make their closing
0: statement? Before Bob could stand and speak, a shaky old hand gently squeezed his shoulder.
5: Bob, listen. You haven't given me a chance to speak all day. I've got this. Really, I do. You're going to lose this case if you don't give me a chance. Don't resign yourself to these devils without giving this old angel a shot at redeeming you. Please, Bob.
0: Bob could see an odd twinkle in the old man's kind eyes. It filled him with hope, flooding his body with warmth as his eyes welled with wet. He nodded.
4: Okay. I trust you. Please, mister. You've got to help me.
5: I got this. Yes, Your Honor. We are prepared to make our closing statement. I hope it's all right that I bring a bit of new information to light given that the accused hadn't afforded me the opportunity to argue on his behalf until now. I hope my observations are permissible to the court. All right, Valentine. I'll allow it. Thank you, Your Honor. Ladies and gentlemen, my client has done himself a gross disservice by neglecting to mention one very important detail with larger implications than merely sorting his soul to the afterlife.
0: At the snap of his quivering fingers... A large screen appeared floating several feet in front of the jury. With another snap, a picture of Bob's wife, Samantha, appeared, smiling and radiant, and practically exuding compassion.
5: Samantha Howard is Bob's wife of six years. She's a school teacher at Braintree Elementary School, where she teaches kindergarten. In her spare time, when she isn't thinking about her students or her husband, or working on her paintings... She's taking care of her 70-year-old mother while her siblings are on the other side of the country. She does this despite a constant verbal abuse at the hands of her mother. And while some days are harder than others, she always finds time to make someone's day better. Brighter. Samantha Howard is a generous, saintly woman. Here's a photo of when Robert and Samantha met on their first date. Now, do you notice their eyes... This photo's of the two of them at their wedding reception. And here's a picture of the two of them having breakfast this morning. Which, to my client's credit, he didn't used to wake up for until they moved in together. Do you notice the way they're still looking at each other? Notice the fine creases around his eyes, and the way her nose has that little crinkle? I think you'll all understand, without me saying so, that it's clear that these two love each other. They always have, and they always will. In life and in death for all the rest of time. Trust me, I should know. It should be fairly obvious that Samantha Howard's current trajectory should find her a place beyond Heaven's Gate when her time comes. And considering what I've heard so far from Mr. Howard's defense, it seems that his current trajectory has him ending up downstairs. Given these likelihoods, it seems to me that these true loves will be separated for the rest of eternity... That cannot be allowed to happen. If it does, I'd argue that when Samantha's time comes, it won't matter much what the verdict is. She'll either suffer with him in hell or languish alone in heaven. Without her soulmate, God himself will never see her nose crinkle again. The verdict you cast today carries the weight of not one soul, but two. One virtuous, one, well shall we say, human? I pray you consider this carefully. Thank you, Your Honor.
3: Well, very moving sentiments, indeed. Is what Valentine said about your wife true, Mr. Howard?
4: He's right, Your Honor. I love Sam so, so much. I always have, and I always will. She's, um... She's my sidekick. She's my friend. She's certainly my better half. We saw this play together when we were in college, The Diary of Adam and Eve. And that's the first time she ever saw me cry. Ever. And it was was this line at the end of the play, you see. After they were casted out, Adam and Eve grew old together. And Eve has this monologue about praying that when their time comes, she hopes she goes first because he is strong and she is weak and that for her, life without him would be impossible. And she dies and Adam buries her and laments her voice falling silent at the end of his life. He said to the audience that wheresoever she was, there was Eden. And I knew that was true then And I know it to be true now. She's my Eve. And my Eden. Please don't do this.
3: All right, Mr. Howard. You may take a seat. Court is adjourned until the jury has finished deliberating their verdict. We will reconvene at that time.
0: (coughs) The jury deliberated behind silent doors for hours. St. Valentine had nodded off in his chair and was gently snoring while Asmodeus leaned back in his chair, listening to music with long black earbuds. Bob could only stare at his hands clasped in front of him, taking inventory of his entire life and wondering what the verdict would bring. He thought of Sam and how foolish he'd been to go off and buy champagne instead of rushing home to her, allowing himself to fall into her arms and bury his head into her shoulder, he became frighteningly aware that he may never experience that sensation again. Suddenly, a short demon in a bailiff's uniform appeared from the deliberating room to announce a verdict had been reached.
3: All right, Miss Forewoman. Has the jury reached a verdict?
2: We have, Your Honor. We, the jury, seraph and sinners in kind, for the charge of a living lifetime unfit for heavenly rapture, find the defendant. Robert Howard to be guilty on all counts and unfit to enter Heaven's Gate.
4: I'm sorry, Bob. It's okay. Really, it's not your fault.
3: (sighs) Mr. Howard, do you understand the charges that you've been found guilty of?
4: Yes, Your Honor.
3: And do you wish to receive your sentence at this time? I do, Your Honor. Very well. I'll begin sentencing immediately. In light of the evidence put forth in the closing statements by your arbiter, St. Valentine, there is only one sentence I can give you. I sentence you to probation on earth for the rest of your natural life. Your honor, I object. Counselor Asmodeus, you've already rendered your closing statements, and besides, I'm the judge in this courtroom, and not you. Lord knows if you were sitting in my chair, the kingdom of heaven would be a ghost town. Take a seat
2: But he has lived a life of wickedness You know the rules
3: And that life has ended Now sit down before I have my bailiff remove you from this courtroom Alright, Bob Howard You only get one more shot at this This is a clean slate for you Turn up here again with another rap sheet like this And my hands are going to be tied Do you understand me, young man?
4: Yes, I understand Thank you Thank you, Your Honor
3: Don't thank me, thank your wife, and thank your guardian angel for arguing on your behalf. Now,
0: wake up. Bob slowly blinked his eyes open. For a moment he was blinded by the light shining down on his face. His head ached, and he couldn't remember where he was. He felt as though he'd been sleeping for a long time, but it was a cold, dreamless slumber. A blurry, bearded face came into view. Bob felt a cold stethoscope press against his chest. Ma'am,
5: I think he's waking up. Oh, thank God, Bobby, you're awake. Sam? Welcome back, Mr. Howard. We lost you back there for a bit, but you're gonna be all right now. Just take things slowly, okay? Okay. You're lucky to be alive.
0: Bob watched as the old doctor pulled away the stethoscope with quivering hands. He had the kindest eyes Bob had ever seen, and they seemed to almost twinkle in the light.
5: I'll leave you two alone. Remember, slowly, okay? I'll be back to check on you later.
4: I'm so happy you came back to me, Bobby. Do you remember anything about what happened? No, darling. Do you know where we are right now? Yeah. Eden.
1: my dancer.
3: She makes moves, it's true.
0: I can't hold her much closer. I didn't beyond the veil will be right back after this special valentine's promotion from our generous sponsor
3: greetings pulp listeners do i have a product in store for you but first let me ask you have you ever suffered at the hands of someone else's unrequited love maybe a friend you've noticed becoming a bit more doe-eyed of late or perhaps a co-worker who is entirely aloof to your signals of rejection do you often find yourself surrounded by suitors at the bar when all you want to do is drown your sorrows with a stiff Ginny tea. Introducing a brand new way to say, GET AWAY! with Guzma's magical hate potion number 10. This magical potion is brewed by real witches to make anyone who drinks it instantly despise you. Having a bad first date and want to get away? Hate potion! Disappointing boyfriend insisting on moving in? BOOM! Hate potion! Crumbling marriage leaving you feeling drained and wondering when you stop stopped being fun? And whether or not you're only together for the sake of the kids? Yes, that's right. Give your spouse hate potion number 10 and start having fun again. How does this powerful formula work? It couldn't be easier. Simply order your hate potion number 10 from our website and have it shipped to your door for free in two business days. Ready to slip that dastardly nip into your soon-to-be enemy's next sip? Simply unscrew the cap, spit into the bottle, and pour immediately into their drink. The nearly flavorless liquid blends quietly into almost any beverage, coffee, beer, milk or even your last can of cola that you told them not to drink because you bought them for you but don't take us at our word for it listen to this very satisfied customer
0: yeah things just weren't working out with Janet she's pretty intimidating and I didn't want to make her upset so I ordered a bottle of Guzma's magic hate potion number 10 and slipped it into her morning smoothie you know at, at first it was like I didn't know if it worked She just got up and left for work early. It wasn't until I was headed to work later that I realized she'd slashed my tires and cut my brakes, put holes in my oil tank. Thankfully, everyone involved in the accident was okay, except me. The doctor said they couldn't save my legs, or knees, most of my
3: torso. You're probably wondering just how much this amazing product is. Guzma's Magical Hate Potion Number 10, the only hate potion on the market with a 1,000 years of hate guarantee, can be yours for one easy payment of $143. But wait, because there's more. Order within the next 20 minutes, and you'll receive a complimentary box of Guzma's Every Texture Chocolates. These special bonbons come in a variety of shapes with mystery textured fillings. Listen to this real first-time reaction. Uh, Mr. Hosserfolt, uh, some woman named Janet left these for you.
0: Hey, thanks. Chocolates in a card? Wow. I guess maybe Guzma's hate potion isn't as strong as she says it is. I do love chocolates, though. This one looks good. Mmm. Okay. Sand? Nice. Well, she got me a card at least. It's got a heart on it. Let's see what it says. John, You're half the man you were with me. Ha! Huh. I guess that hate potion sure does work.
3: So what are you waiting for? Head on over to www.guzmasgrimoires.com to order your very own Magical Hate Potion number 10 today. That's www.guzmasgrimoires.com And remember, order in the next 20 minutes and you'll receive a free box of Guzmas Every Texture Chocolates. Flip off your friends with such textures as wool sweater, ice cubes, ashes, and chicken gizzards. So grab your mouse and head over to Guzmas Grimoires today. Remember, Magical Hate Potion number 10 Never see their face again.
0: folks, the last log in the fire has burnt down. We've sipped our last dregs of wine, and now it is time to wrap up this special episode. We hope you've enjoyed listening to our program, and we want you to know just how wonderful it is to have listeners like you tuning into our show each episode. And though this episode leaned more into The Twilight Zone rather than Tales from the Crypt... If you've been missing the horror and scare factor of our program, I assure you that we'll be getting back on track next week. Special thanks to this episode's extensive cast and contributors. Through the Ringer was written by Gustav Grift, performed by Devin Marquez and Christopher McLean, and narrated by Cody Sullivan. Let the Record Show was written by C.A. Sullivan, performed by Zachary and Chelsea Richardson, Chris Goulet, Moe Worth, Dominic Ronka, and Jamie Danner, and narrated by Cody Sullivan. Special thanks to The Pilgrims for providing additional music for the episode, and if you liked what you heard, you can check out their latest album, No Focus, on Spotify. Additional music and editing was done by Cody Sullivan. Special thanks to Pulp co-producer, the talented Zachary Husband. If you like what we're doing and want to support the show, or perhaps even get a shout-out at the end of the episode, head on over to patreon.com slash pulpfrombeyond to make a donation. We'd certainly appreciate it. If you're interested in submitting a story or lending us your voice, or maybe just want to say hello... You can email us at pulpfrombeyond at gmail.com. We'd love to hear where you're listening from. That's all for now. Until next time, I'm Cody
4: Sullivan, signing off.